Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, some good news for walleye anglers on Mille Lacs. The Gopher softball team is on a roll, and state lawmakers are working around the clock to fix daylight savings time. But first, this week, the State Office of the Legislative Auditor released its report on allegations of fraud involving the Minnesota Child Care Assistance Program, or CCAP. There had been allegations that the fraud reached as high as $100 million, but Auditor James Nobles told lawmakers, We couldn't find evidence to substantiate that there is $100 million in fraud in CCAP every year. In fact, we couldn't really find a reasonable estimate of fraud. We don't have one. The department doesn't have one. They dispute the $100 million, but we can't tell you. And so you're sort of left, I think, in a very awkward and unfortunate position that you have Mr. Stillman, and more importantly, you have the director, the manager of the CCAP fraud unit saying that it's $100 million. But we can't tell you, and the department can't tell you, exactly how much fraud exists. In the wake of the report, Republican Senator Mark Coran of North Branch called on Department of Human Services Inspector General Carolyn Hamm to resign. What's troubling is they were only able to identify a couple elements and affirmation of, of identified and prosecuted fraud. But what it really highlighted is that between the agency, they believe the fraud actually does confirm, or the agency confirms the fraud um, at the levels that were identified in the report, near $100 million. It came from the lead investigator from the Department of Human Services. The inspector general had not met with her, her fraud investigation staff, either her, her lead investigator, Jay Swanson, and or any of the members, that she couldn't even identify them in her agency. This group is responsible for the, the identification and prosecution investigation and prosecution of all fraud, not just the CCAP fraud. And for her to not take that action, not even to participate in that, how can we have an effective and comprehensive fraud investigation program if there's absolutely no communication up through the chain of command within that agency? It's not possible. I don't know what the motivations were. I don't know why she would, why would, she would not even participate. She met with all other agencies except one, a core processing group. Um, with that, um, the, the work that the Inspector General did do once the report came out actually worked to discredit not only the, the Channel 9 report, um, the, the, uh, Steve Stillman who provided the information, but her own staff, her lead investigator. Um, so, so that to me is troubling. So we need to have accountability in government, we need to have transparency, and we need to make sure that we restore trust in our citizens in Minnesota. These are dollars that we want to make sure go to the most vulnerable and those needy in our community. That's why the program exists. So with that, that's why I'm calling, uh, personally calling for the resignation of, of the Inspector General Carolyn Hamm. And if that resignation doesn't come voluntarily, we're calling on Governor Walls to uh, um, remove her with cause from that office. In response to the report, Muhammad Omar with Dar al-Farouk Islamic Center told reporters, We are here as members of the Muslim community today in hopes that the unfounded racist and Islamophobic false allegation that child care assistance program fraud funding terrorism will end today. The CCAP report released today by the Office of Legisl Legislative Auditor once again confirmed with what people of goodwill 
and common sense have known for almost 10 months that there is no evidence of CCAP funding, CCAP funds going to fund terrorism. Since May of last year, several Republican legislators and even candidates for governor have been perpetuating an unsubstantiated and unfounded rumor that Somali childcare providers are committing fraud and diverting CCAP funds and sending them to Somalia to fund terrorism. I hope the dangerous political games are over. Lawmakers are considering next steps, but it appears the one thing all sides agree on is that more oversight is necessary. This report confirms, I think, what most of us uh, knew, that there is widespread child care assistance program fraud and that the department lacks basic internal controls to clamp down on this fraud. That's Representative Nick Zerwas of Elk River and Democratic Senator Tina Liebling. I think it's fair to say that we will never get rid of all fraud in these programs, but we will continue to work at it and to try and to make our programs tighter. Several bills are already being proposed to do just that, although Republicans say the Democrats' plans don't go far enough. Amid all the finger-pointing, Department of Human Services Commissioner Tony Laurie says in the future it's crucial to ensure the program meets the needs of the children, the families, and the communities that it's designed to serve. CCAP provides critical support to families with low incomes so that parents can work and their children receive safe, quality care, and I think it's really important that we make sure we not lose the perspective of what this program is intended to do. Minnesota Matters returns after this. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The DNR announced anglers will be able to harvest walleye on Lake Mille Lacs this spring. Reporter J.W. Cox talked with DNR Fisheries Chief Brad Parsons and a Mille Lacs fishing guide about this first catch-and-keep opportunity on the lake since 2015. First, we start with the nuts and bolts from Parsons. Beginning with opening day, uh, there will be a harvest allowed of, on Mille Lacs of walleye. Uh, the walleye would have to be between uh, 21 and 23 inches or one walleye over 28 inches. And that will continue through the end of May. And at, beginning June 1st at, at uh, 12.01 a.m., it then goes to catch and release angling only for walleye. As for what impact this harvest opportunity will have... Parsons says nothing is set in stone, but they are hopeful. The reason we're kind of stick, starting with May is that uh, if, if we start carefully and cautiously, then then uh, we're able to, to provide this opportunity at, 
at a low risk. There are several unknowns that occur in any fishing season, uh, including how hot the bite's going to be, uh, what the weather conditions are, etc. And we are also expecting a, a good uh, good response of people, more folks going to the lake when harvest is allowed. That is where the first point of contention comes up in the mind of Brad Hawthorne, a longtime fishing guide on Mille Lacs. What I think is going to happen is what you're going to see is people that live within 45 minutes, an hour of the lake, say, hey, let's go up to Mille Lacs and hopefully get our one fish and take it home. So at best, you're maybe going to get, you know, tourism is maybe going to get a tank of gas out of it. I'm an established guide that has a, has a great customer base. I mean, my customers are just awesome. They come up here because I produce results, and I always have. My, my question is, now are we bringing Malax back to the customer that just wants to kill fish? You know, because for the last three, four, five years, we've been our customers have been, hey, I want to catch 50 fish a day. I want a shot at that trophy fish. I don't care about keeping fish. I'll eat a burger. Hawthorne attended DNR listening sessions about the plan and says the May harvest was not the most impactful approach available. At the end, you know, you have 10 minutes where you can have public input, and my input was, hey, how about we, everyone's already booked for May, so why don't we take the one fish and move it to... Because their, their option was opening for kill in May and then in the fall. My option was, okay, let's just remove May and have two fish. People can keep two fish in the fall when business is a little slim up here. And I think that would have been done more for the economy, for the resorts, for, for a time of year when the resorts don't have a lot of people there, when it's kind of slipping towards the off-season. That would have made more sense if the DNR actually, you know, if if the economy was their true concern with with the fishery, that that at least was my input, and I got brushed over fairly quickly. Parsons, meanwhile, says doing the harvest in May signals their commitment to preserving the quality of fishing on the lake. A commitment that has brought about results. The walleye population has been improving over the last several years, and that's that's very good news. We we're we're now able to uh, start harvesting some fish. We have uh, some young fish currently in the pipeline on the way up, and if they continue coming through, uh, we can continue moving forward in this positive direction. From Hawthorne's viewpoint there on the water, there is no dire need for the type of micromanagement that he says often characterizes fisheries management in the state. I've never seen a decline in my catch rates since the closure, even before the closure. I haven't seen it. The population assessments, things like that. Did I see a trend in size? Absolutely. Four or five years ago, we were catching a lot of bigger fish. That was making up the lion's share of our catch. But we were still getting those numbers day after day. It's not like our numbers fell down. I'm not saying the DNR is wrong in their population assessments because different things affect the bite. You know, bait populations affect the bite. Angler ability definitely affects the bite. Um, So there's several different factors. My simple point is, hey, you know, instead of three options, bringing that to the table at a meeting and saying, hey, pick one of these, how about asking the businesses and the guides what makes sense for you? If people at that meeting would have said, hey, let's take two in the winter, catch and release in the summer, two in the winter, or take one or two in the fall, or save that harvest quota that we have for May and apply it all to the fall. All told, Hawthorne says the state could benefit from a unified fisheries management approach and a recognition of the changes that are taking place in angler appetites. They don't care about keeping fish anymore. We've gotten past that. You know, where, where the important times happen, the ice fishermen, those guys want to keep fish. 
They sit in the house all weekend. You know, those guys, that, that tradition of staying in a fish house, that's where I feel that the harvest is more important. I really believe that fisheries in the state of Minnesota, we have to come to a common ground, whether that's state-managed or tribe and, and state-managed. I really believe we just need one authority over these, these bodies of water. I mean, it's, it's, we're well into the 2000 era of managing resources for the human population, for Americans, needs to be done by one, one entity, whoever it is, different people having different quotas on different bodies of water that overall affect the license buying individuals of the state, I believe is just is completely wrong and it needs to be changed sooner rather than later. In the meantime, as we sit just less than two months away from the open water fishing season, Parsons says the walleye harvest represents the biggest change people need to be aware of as they pull out the rod and reel this coming spring. Regulations for the other species are, are going to be very similar. Uh, to last summer, and we encourage people to always check the latest regulations on the Minnesota DNR website. That website, mndnr.gov. Fishing opener date set for May 11th. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The University of Minnesota softball team has moved up to number 21 in this week's National Coaches Poll. The Golden Gophers entered the weekend with a 15-7 and record, including three wins over nationally ranked teams. Minnesota took two of three games from ninth-ranked Texas last weekend in Austin. The Gophers are one of the favorites to compete for a Big Ten championship as the spring season continues. The team has an interesting next couple of weeks. They're playing in a tournament in Tampa this weekend, then we'll head to Gainesville for a single game against 7th-rated Florida on Wednesday. School's on spring break, so the squad will stay in the South to practice and then open Big Ten play at Maryland on March 22nd. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with the senior leader of the team. Maddie Houlihan is an outfielder from Plymouth who attended Benilde St. Margaret's. Before we look ahead, let's look back. How much fun was it in Texas? You got a couple of wins over a top 10 team. Uh, kind of walk us through the weekend. Uh, Texas was awesome. Um, we knew that we were going to have to play some of our best ball of the year in order to compete and win um, against Texas. So we started the weekend with Texas Southern, uh, had a great game, and then had a little game break, came back under the lights against Texas. And, you know, it was a super fun atmosphere, super cool stadium to play in. Um, we played well, and we, you know, we were just working together as a team, and we kind of just found a way to win. And, you know, it was a good way to start the weekend. And then, obviously, we had a little hiccup on Saturday, um, a game that we definitely could have won. But we were thankful that we were able to come back on Sunday and play them again. And As you look long-term, how important are those kind of wins as you uh, work toward, let's say, you get into uh, the spring and that RPI and all those things that matter, right? Yeah, it's huge. I think we've been on the the brink of beating that top 10 team. You know, we've competed well against some of those bigger name schools at the beginning of the season and, you know, things finally clicked and we were able to come through with those Ws. Those are huge looking down on the road just to be able to look back on and know that, you know, top 10 competition is something that we for sure can handle. 
Yeah, and on paper, obviously, it's important, too. But I would think mentally, as you just said, knowing that you can now win that, how, how much of a confidence booster has that been just coming off of the weekend and now looking ahead to uh, being gone from home for a while with all these games coming up? It's huge. It's definitely a confidence booster. You know, we're going to have another tough weekend, and then we have a midweek against Florida, which will be very challenging as well. And then you jump right into conference. So it's going to be a tough you know, upcoming spring break, but I think coming off of this weekend is really good for us to kind of have that um, momentum going into the week. You guys are used to traveling on the weekends, and it's not always the smoothest of travel when you're dealing with as big of a travel party as a softball team is. Um, but you'll be gone for a while now, I think 11 days once you leave town, and then uh, uh, it'll be the tournament in Tampa, then off to Gainesville to play Florida, which obviously is a tough game, and then you open Big Ten play. What what uh, are you looking forward to? Kind of take us through what, what uh, a long road trip like that uh, can do. It's good for the team, a uh, good time to bond and kind of unwind as a team as we have – some of those days that we don't compete, but we have a lot of good upcoming competition. So I think this week being in Tampa will be fun. Um, South Florida is a good team, good host place to play at. And then Gainesville is going to be tough. Um, so we'll have to get mentally ready for that game. And then, you know, you always want to start strong in conference. So we kind of have three different, you know, almost weekends in one big travel week. So we kind of have to take it one game at a time. Otherwise, if we look at Maryland now, that seems far, far away, but we kind of have to take it one game at a time. You guys have gotten really good pitching in the circle, uh, kind of headlined by Amber Pfizer, who's won, I know, a national award and a Big Ten weekly award a couple of times. Obviously, when you talk softball, pitching is first and foremost. Uh, have you been pleased with what you're seeing in the circle? Yeah, I mean, they're all crushing it from Hannah Bailey getting her first start and getting a shutout. Um, I mean, that was awesome to see Rachel coming in clutch, closing the last game, and Sid and Amber just compliment each other so well. I think the whole staff compliments each other really well, and they've done an amazing job of, you know, giving the defense the ability to make some plays behind them and the offense a chance to, you know, score some runs. And they've kept us in every single game we've played in this entire year. So, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't be pleased with how they're doing. So it's awesome. Um, and then as you look ahead as well with uh, long-range goals, what, how good can this team be? Where would you like to, as you, uh, I mean, you're a senior, right? So this is it for you as you uh, wind this down. Where would you like to see this uh, all end up when it warms up? <laughs> you know, just I think this team has hasn't even reached its full potential yet. I think we've seen moments of greatness or moments of, you know, what this team can do. And I think if we continue to get better after every single weekend and learn from, you know, what we've done well, things we could get better at, I I really think the end of the year could be a special time for us. Um, obviously, you have to take it one game at a time. And, you know, hopefully we can um, establish ourselves in conference and then have some good momentum going into postseason. Very good. Good luck. Enjoy the trip. Thank you very much. That's MN Sports Director Mike Grimm with Gopher senior softball player Maddie Houlihan. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Unexpected reactions to smart financial decisions brought to you by FeedThePig.org. Well, I finally did it. I opened a 401k. So you're giving up. Just like that. Giving up on what? I'm getting an inheritance from a distant relative. 
Don't you think if there were a billionaire in the family, we'd know about it by now? Listen to me. We are one phone call away from riding horses on our own private polo grounds. One call from christening yachts, having a butler, using summer as a verb. How do you figure? Look, everyone's got a rich uncle somewhere. It's statistics. So the best thing you can do is just prepare for the inevitable. Right, which is why I thought maybe it would be smart to take control of my finances. You know, start using a budget, get out of debt, set some retirement goals. Budgets? Debt? You watch your mouth. Retirement shouldn't be a goal for us. It should be a way of life. When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. And now, here's a timely commentary from Bill Werner on state lawmakers' attempts to fix daylight savings. I thought I was adjusting fairly well to the time change. Even though it's now dark again when I get up in the morning, the positive is that it's light, at least for part of the trip home at night. But I started getting confused when I had to be gone for a few days and needed to reset my old-style lamp timer that makes it look to prospective burglars like I'm home when actually I'm not. This mercifully old device has a time-now arrow, and all I have to do is rotate it clockwise, I guess, so the arrow points one hour later. Then I started wondering. It's now one hour later, but because spring is coming, the sun is also setting later and rising earlier, and so I need to have my lamp turn on sooner in the morning and later in the evening, but then turn off at about the same time as I would have gone to bed had I been there. But is that before or after we changed over to daylight saving time? These counteracting planetary forces remind me of the Minnesota legislature, where it is not uncommon to see a bill introduced to cancel the repeal of a prohibition on something, hopefully not daylight saving time. And because of things that are now happening in St. Paul and in Washington, D.C., I'm not at all sure whether at the end of this legislative session we'll know what time it is, either at the state capitol or maybe anywhere else in Minnesota. President Trump started it right after the time switch weekend, touching, as he often does, a sensitive nerve. In this case, people who don't have enough time anyway, losing yet another hour of sleep. The president, of course, tweeted that he would be okay staying on daylight saving time all year. But Congress would have to approve it, he said, presumably without a rider on border walls. Funny thing here is that under current federal law, states can opt out of daylight saving time and stay on standard time all year. But if instead they decide to follow the pack and move those clocks ahead in the spring, they can't leave them there forever. They have to go back in early November. So here's where the Minnesota legislature decided to weigh in. A bill in the House, where lawmakers years ago covered the clock up when they ran out of time before the session deadline, that bill in the House would make daylight saving time year-round in Minnesota if Congress gives the state's permission. The member from Hennepin, Representative Freiburg, about your enlightening legislation. Madam Speaker, I'm tired. I am so tired today. And I was trying to figure out why I was so tired. And then it hit me. Oh, it's because we changed the clocks. Is there any reason for that anachronistic relic that we still have to change our clocks? 
Well, over in the other wing of the Capitol, the Senate's bill started out the exact same way, year-round daylight saving time. But then things got a little bit messed up when one of those pesky amendments was put on in committee. Senator Mary Kiffmeyer from Big Lake made some strong arguments, though, for year-round time consistency. Young children who are being put right at the springtime of their school year, right in the fall as are going back to school, you have a disruption of their sleep cycles and everybody else that goes with it over a 10-year period. Results showed a 6% increase in crashes immediately after people reset their clocks in the spring, which amounted to more than 300 deaths. And here's one that I wouldn't have thought of. Researchers from Finland analyzed over a decade of stroke data, 8% higher during the first two days after a daylight saving time transition. The senator probably made the case for time consistency, but then went on to argue that because no one knows what Congress will do, I guess there's ample evidence of that, that under her bill... Yes, you would have standard time year-round, and in the meantime lobbying the federal government to um, go to daylight savings time uh, year-round. But Columbia Heights Senator Carolyn Lane apparently doesn't want to take a chance on what Congress might or might not do. I love daylight time. (laughs) I I cannot imagine summer where the sun would be up way before I ever get up and would go down when I'm just getting going. (laughs) So I I, I, I liked your first bill. Too bad we can't do that. Um, I think I'll just wait for the federal government because I don't want standard time. Elbow Lake Senator Tory Westrom doesn't like standard time year-round either. Doing this, we would be shortening everybody's summer nights that they enjoy outside, campfires, whatever it is. But Woodbury Senator Susan Kent contends year-round standard time avoids a significant problem. Little kids at a bus stop in the early morning in those dark hours and uh, in the short days of winter in Minnesota. Okay, to figure out what's really happening in the halls of government, we need to go on site with longtime state capitol lobbyist Scott Moen, who certainly must know what time it is. I always know what time it is. Uh, when you work around here, you have to be timely. You don't want to be late for a senator meeting or a state rep meeting. Let's go in, into the Minnesota House chamber. Absolutely. And, and let's look at the clock that's we'll on the wall. We'll see what time it is. And this clock says 2 p.m., doesn't it? I mean, is that right? It says 2 p.m., right okay. above us. And, and and you want to check your uh, uh, smartphone, too, and just be sure that you're absolutely... It, it says staying. 2 p.m. It's 2 p.m., okay. Absolutely. All right, so let's, let's walk just right across to the other chamber here to the Minnesota Senate and see what the clock says there all right here we go are you thinking it might be a little different I don't know what to think I mean it might be maybe it'll be the same this time of the legislative session but but maybe at the end of the session it'll be different I don't have any idea almost at the Senate chamber and now here we go up the main steps and the official clock that is above the the Senate president's rostrum there it says... It says 1 o'clock. No, I can see it with my own eyes. But your cell phone says... My cell phone says 2, two o'clock. We were so just in the House chambers. It said 2 o'clock. This says 1 o'clock. Well, I, well, I got a Senate hearing. I got to be 2 at 1 o'clock, Scott. That means you already missed it, Bill. Hope you keep your job.
now I think it's well past time for me to get out of here. Bill Werner on the Minnesota News Network. Thank you for that, Bill. And that's all the time that we have for you this week. Please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.